Here we go. So let's go ahead and pray. Uh, God, we love you, and we thank you, Lord, just for the chance to gather in your name. And Lord, I know that when I say that, it, it means something to some, and it's a little convoluted to others, and it means nothing to even some others. And God, so we just pray this morning, regardless of our perspective on that statement, regardless of our understanding of who you are, if your truth is truth or not, I pray that we would see your truth is good, that it is absolute, and that in, in that in that definitiveness, Lord, there's comfort. It's not limiting. It's limitless, God, because it is your truth that you created us for and in. And God, so I pray this morning that as we as we teach, as we listen, as we learn, that we would that our the foundations of what we see of what we teach would be nothing other than Christ crucified and the magnificent work achieved and the in the call that we are called to in that God. And so I thank you for Jesus, the life and salvation we have in him. I thank you for Jesus, the mission we've been called to in him and alongside with him, God. And so we commit all this time to you. Work through me or in spite of me, whatever it takes, let your truth uh, just penetrate and let your work be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, guys, we all, when we think, what is a Christian? What does a Christian look like? You know, if you were to kind of stand in front of the proverbial mirror and you were trying to see kind of just the, the typical Christian, different things come to mind. We start asking questions or start making statements about what political party a Christian should be in, a Christ follower. Do, do Christ followers drink or do they not drink? Do they dance or not dance? Not can they dance? Do they dance or not dance? Uh, do they have tattoos? Uh, how much money should a Christian make? How much money should a Christian give away? Do Christians cuss? Are there, are there you know, and not just the acceptable ones. Do they just cuss at all? They have Christian cuss words like, dang it. Um, <laughs> how often do you have to go to church if you want to be called a Christian? Like, these are the kind of the questions that we sometimes knowingly ask and answer, and other times we just kind of have this, this unspoken understanding of, and we kind of develop this picture of what a Christian is. And while all those things are good things to consider, and you should because we need to be intentional with the choices that we make and we want to understand that our life is a witness, at the same time, those are all external. And so, you know, but external matters. And so what we're getting at today is, is when we come back into the Sermon on the Mount, we just got through, when I say just got through, the last time we were in the Sermon on the Mount a few months ago, we, we worked through the Beatitudes, which was speaking to the foundational identity of those who are in Christ. Because when we think about the Beatitudes, you know, the, the, the Beatitudes being, you know, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. All of those things, if you remember them, we, we think of... When, we, when we're speaking of those, first and foremost, they're describing the very character and person of Jesus, but then it's also, if you remember, was describing the identity of those who are in Christ. It's not a causal statement. The Beatitudes weren't, if you show mercy, you will experience mercy. That's how you get mercy. It wasn't, you know, if, if you are pure in heart, you shall see God. It was it's speaking to identity because you are a part of him, because you will see God, you must be pure in heart. So then for, it's like this, the law of non-contradiction, you cannot see God without being pure in heart. So it's natural to assume that you will be pure in heart because you've been made pure in heart in Christ. And because of that, you will see God, right? Are we all, we're all tracking, right? Your head is spinning. So that's the fun part though. It is identity. It's not causal statements. That's what we built up in, be, in the Beatitudes is this this identity of those who are in Christ. So as we move into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we're shown what it looks like to live out what you already are. 
You're living out that identity. It's an expressed identity. Many have made the mistake throughout history of coming to the Sermon on the Mount and looking at it as a moralistic code, a way to live. Because again, it's, pretty, it's kind of a natural thing. And, and you've seen that from, from Gandhi. It, we were just in India back in November. We went to his house and they were saying that really one of the most influential writings for him was the Sermon on the Mount. And it really set him out to how he wanted to see people live. And so he kind of set up this moralistic code. The whole addiction recovery, the 12 steps, based on the Sermon on the Mount. But it's a lot more about a way, a code of how to live. Uh, and, and unfortunately, many pastors in our pulpits have, have diluted, have kind of taken this down to just that, that moralism. But again, so if we remember what the Beatitudes were about, we remember that it's identity. So then when we come into, when we come into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we have to recognize this is an expressed identity. That to me, that changes everything. An expressed identity, not just a way that you must set yourself to live. Now, there is willful choice that you make in living this way, but it is out of identity, out of relationship, and not to attain identity and relationship, and it's an expression. So that's where we're going. Hopefully, that'll unpack more and more over the weeks and months to come. But we have to remember the Beatitudes build a foundation and are even a prerequisite to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon from Jesus. From Jesus. So there's two more things real quick about our text this week, and really next week's text as well. Uh, first is that, it, that these, these weeks, these texts, these next two weeks, they're, kind, they're a hinge point, they're an anchor point, or kind of a filter in which we must wade through the rest of Jesus' sermon. We must, we can remember the Beatitudes, and as we remember the Beatitudes, be taking through, taking through this week's text and next week's text as we look to apply what it is to live as those who are in Christ. So, um, as we delve deeper and deeper into the behavior of the Christian life, we, we can become more distant from the heart or drive of, of why we're being commanded to this. So that is why we want to keep this anchor. Matthew 5, 1 through 16, they are imperative if you're to understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So I, I would encourage you over the time to come, just revisit it often. Honestly, read the whole Sermon on the Mount over and over again as many times as you can. It takes 15 to 20 minutes. Just set some time aside at least once a week, read through it so we can keep it fresh, we can keep the full picture in mind. Because again, as we start kind of working through these little vignettes of, of, of how to live, again, we can kind of get tunnel vision and forget what, these, what this is expressing, why we're being charged to this. So I, I stated earlier that we're transitioning from the identity of Christ, of a Christ follower, to the activity of those who are in Christ. Um, so again, let us work through these next few verses as a transition from that identity to an expressed identity. So go ahead, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Matthew 5. Uh, click on your apps. If you don't have either, look around you on the floor. There'll be a Bible there. Uh, you can use that Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible. Let it be our gift to you. We would love for you to have it. So Matthew 5, we're going to start in verse 13. Reminder, Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first sermon recorded in Scripture. It's also his longest sermon recorded in Scripture. So this is the very teaching of Jesus himself. So I'll give you a second to get there. We're going to read just verse 13 to start. Matthew 5, 13. 
All right. It'll be on the screen, too, if you need it. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So the first thing we must notice, and it kind of already reiterates what I've already said in the intro, but is that you, that first word, you, that, that is an emphatic you. It is, it's an emphatic, it is, it is unarguable, it's directive, it is you. So who is the you? It is those who are described by the Beatitudes, those who have taken on the identity of Christ, those who have been transformed by the grace and goodness of God expressed and given through Jesus. Those who have said, I am a sinner and I need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus and he's become Savior and Lord. That is the you. So this you is an, is an inclusive you as well as an exclusive you. So real quickly, inclusively, again, it's all those who are in Christ, all those who find fellowship with him, those who are being described in the Beatitudes, as we said, and those, uh, and in this, this you is communicating responsibility. So we're coming up to this emphatic you that then leads to uh, a communication of responsibility. This you is exclusive, kind of obviously, but not for those. It's, it's exclusive in that it, that it is not for those who have not called on Jesus. So it is for those who have. Those for, it is not for those who have not called on Jesus as Savior. And let me just tell you, if that sounds unkind, it is not. Because if you were to try to, to set forth the rest of the Sermon on the Mount to someone who was not taken from death to life, not taken from old to new, not given a new understanding in the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit illuminates the truth of God as we know, to try to tell someone, here's how you should live, that is exasperating, it's a weight around their neck, and it's, it's putting the cart before the horse. It's saying, you change before you've been changed. That's really, that's kind of, so it's, a, it's, not a, it's not an unkind thing. It's a kindness to say that it's exclusive. But what I want you to do is I want you to hear an invitation. Again, as we work through this, we'll see that none of these things are bad things. None of these things as we work through the Sermon on the Mount are things that people wouldn't want to see manifested in their lives, to experience in their relationships, to, to have a posture in which they go through life. And so you'll see that, that, that again, the transforming work of Christ and, and the transforming truth of God is the transforming thing for our good and for his glory. And so hear the invitation. It's an inclusive and exclusive view, but it is not exclusive in the fact that it is not inviting. It is exclusive only until you surrender. So hear the invitation. To those who are in Christ, don't make the mistake of asking someone to act this way and, or have this motivation without first being transformed by the gospel of Jesus. You know, we get so sidetracked about people's behaviors, and they, and they get sidetracked by their own behaviors, and they want to know what you think about their behavior. And they ask you, and, I, you know, and you say, hey, I have a far greater concern first. Let me tell you about Jesus. He's the hope of the world. All, this, all these things that you think weigh us down or distract, he is the hope. So let's make sure you know the hope and the transforming work first. And then all these other behavioral things will take care of themselves because they are an expressed identity. Okay? So don't make the mistake of saying change first, then let me tell you about the gospel. So let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus, and that will change you forever. A little, little freebie there. So like I said, it's an emphatic you. Hear 
and feel the force of this. As, as you sit in the seat, finding yourself where you're at in the inclusion or the exclusion, there is no wiggle room. You know, there is no backup plan if you are in Christ. When we come into the responsibility to come, we see that we are it. We are the means in which God is intending his, his, responsible, his, uh, his call to be taken out. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. That's it. So, if you are the salt of the earth, what does that mean? Because it says, you are the salt of the earth. Do you know what that means? Two questions come to mind for me. One, what is the function of salt? Two, what is the state of the earth? Those are the two questions that come to mind. So first we look at the function of salt. And, you know, in, in there, there's a lot of kind of metaphorical conjecture and all kinds of teaching about kind of what the salt represents. And I'll say that they're all probably faithful understandings. You know, but there's a few that I think are more central to what is being taught here. So we're just going to look at a couple of them. And, and, I, and because this is a general metaphor, I, I, I don't feel this necessity to kind of give you these contextual, the way salt was used at the time. Because, again, even this text isn't clear enough to tell you that that's actually what it was referring to. And, and so we're just going to look kind of at salt as the general metaphor, because I think that's closer to the intent of, of what Jesus was teaching here and his big truth. So while salt has many functions and attributes, I feel that the two that are most in view here are that salt gives taste and that it preserves. So we'll get to taste in a second, but salt preserving, just practically speaking, thinking about salt and again, this would be true to the time, especially they were in refrigerators. They would, they would slaughter an animal. They would cut up the meat. They had to preserve the meat for a time. Putting salt on the meat would extend the time before the, the meat would putrefy, before it would start to decay and turn. They would, this was part of their, it, was, it happened in the temples. It happened in homes. It was just a way to preserve meat. So we see that a property of salt is that it preserves. So just quickly, again, we'll unpack this more, but those who are in Christ being salt of the earth means that they work in the preserving of the earth. Why does the earth need preserving? What happened back in the day with Adam and Eve when there was the rebellion and the fall? The earth was created in glorious perfection and unity of fellowship with God, and there was nothing wrong. There was no need. Everything was satisfied. There was no death. And then at the fall, death and putrefaction and decay entered the world, and the world has been moving to death ever since. We see it in life cycle. We see it in each other. We see it in, in just the way things come and go. And overall, we see it in the whole world is moving in that direction. So there is a need to preserve the earth. There is a need for us as, the, as those who are called up in Christ to do the same thing that he does and preserve. So the earth is in a state of decaying. Now listen, I like the earth, okay? So don't, you know, again, this is not like everything's horrible. It's just, let's just have a little reality check about the bigger reality. You know, I love my day-to-day -day life. I love all the good restaurants and Montrose. I love the good coffee. I love the people. I love the beauty. But the earth is moving towards decay, both in a physical way and a spiritual way. And really, spiritually, it's dead, left to itself. So it's in need of preserving. So what about 
the flavor that salt gives. And as we think about the decaying earth, and if you heard me say a second ago, when the earth was created, it was created fully satisfied. And that's because there was perfect unity in the fellowship of God. And he satisfies. He is left wanting nothing, needing nothing. He is fully satisfied in himself, and he fully satisfies every bit of his creation's need. So there was no need. And when I think about flavor and taste, I think about satisfying. I was talking to Karen and Leo about it this week, and I was thinking about this time in my life, not now, when I was on an extremely strict diet. And, uh, and, and I was thinking about, like, you know, what was it that satisfied kind of that, that thing. You get hungry, and you know, there, it's not necessarily getting food in your stomach that satisfies all the time. So for me, when I was eating this strict diet portion control, all that stuff, for me, I needed flavor. I needed spice. I had to find spices that didn't have a lot of salt, no, no salt, and all that stuff, and, but I wanted, I wanted spice, 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 and I think that helped me turn the corner to loving spicy. Now when I go to Kung K Thai, I get Pad Thai chicken, spicy level six out of five. So anyway... <laughs> But like thinking about like taste and satisfaction, like again, we're talking about the earth was satisfied and we're talking about, you know, there being us being salt, giving flavor to the world. I don't necessarily mean that our joy, I don't want to downplay that, our joy and our, and our comfort and our peace is like flavoring the world because indeed it is, but it is the fact that we are pointing to a satisfaction in Christ and Christ alone and that we are showing as we preserve, as we live out, as we are in Christ, that we are pointing people to the preserving, satisfying work of Christ, living as salt, and that his truth transforms so that we can point back to what it was and point back to point to what is to come in the fulfilled kingdom when all is once again satisfied in Christ's return. So let's keep moving. We're flying. I love it. So um, let me find out where I am. I totally just left my, my thing for a while, my, my notes. Um, that's good. We got that. So the metaphor, this metaphor is speaking to the negative of the salt working to prevent the decay from happening. It's, it's a negative, preventing the negative from happening. So those who are in Christ are meant to be those who preserve the earth and restore the flavor, as I said, and satisfaction intended when God created and, and coming again. This is the only done as Christ works through us. So our text goes on to say, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So we see the function of salt, the state of the earth. How does salt lose its taste? Because again, if you think about salt, just even kind of on the chemical level, scientifically speaking, one of the key characteristics of sodium chloride is the taste. The, the distinctive, I mean, you can't describe salty taste without just saying it tastes salty. It doesn't taste like anything else. It just tastes salty. Like, what does salt taste like? Jacob, what's it taste like? Salt. Okay, so we didn't even talk about that beforehand. See? It's just that true. So, but one of the Quintessential characteristics, one of, the, one of the key characteristics of salt is that it tastes salty. So how does salt lose its taste? Sodium chloride is an extremely stable compound, meaning that it doesn't easily change from its state, meaning that it's hard to find a chemical that you can act upon sodium chloride that would leave it as sodium chloride, but take away its saltiness. It is extremely stable. So salt, if it's salt doesn't lose taste. So scripture didn't make a mistake. How does salt lose its taste? 
and especially thinking about what it is to be salt to. If we are the salt of the earth, it is that the truth of God is being exhibited and lived through us. And as our transformed lives are being, as our lives are being transformed, the world sees that and longs for that restoration. That is what it is to be salt. So how does that, how does that lose its taste? And I'll simply say it is salt only loses its saltiness. It only loses its taste when it's diluted. When it's diluted. When other things are mixed in or when it's dissolved, that's when salt loses its saltiness. So what we must hear in this is that those who are in Christ, we are to live out the truth given to us and taught to us in an uncompromising way. So that's when we talk about there is a willful act of this life of obedience, choosing the truth of God, sometimes out of faith because we just know that it's good, and sometimes because we have actually experienced the goodness and it it compels us. But either way, we are to set our lives to live out the will and way of God, to express our identity. So to live out, to, to, for salt to not lose its saltiness is to not dilute the truth. And I'll tell you what, today is a hard day. Our culture makes it extremely hard to make some absolute statement of truth. You know, the, again, I, I, this, I don't want to go too far into this, but again, like the whole intolerant, tolerant deal, you know, like to, to state any exclusive understanding is not tolerated, but yet there's a cry for tolerance. And so, again, we want to live humbly. We want to be respectful. We want to be loving, but we also got to live out an uncompromising truth of God because it is in us, because it has changed us, because we've been commanded to. So as those who've been given a new identity, we must not compromise. Also thinking about this, thinking about what it is to be deluded, and maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but I think it's faithful. It's also pointing to the importance of the church. You know, we are Christians. It does not make sense to live isolated. It does not make sense. The monastic move, when they they withdrew and they were ascetic and they just... Maybe two words that just lost you for a sec. I don't know. They kind of lost me. But, but the idea of withdrawing from society so that you can avoid all evil, that is not what we are called to. Pull away sometimes. Find some silence. Find some solitude. Be prayerful, just like Jesus did. But he only did that to restore and to, so that he could reenter in. So to dilute is to live this, this life saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. I value the things of God. But yet you are not connected to the body of Christ. I mean, that's, that is diluting, because again, let's just come back to our big picture of the church real quick that we talk about a lot, the whole idea that where I'm weak, you're strong, where you're weak, someone else is strong, and when they're weak, someone else is strong, and those, those areas of strengths are where we look like Jesus, those areas of weaknesses are where we look like flesh and death. But when we're together, people see Jesus to a greater extent, and that is what transforms, that's what draws people in. The glory of God himself is the thing that draws man in, not anything else, so it's when we live out this way that people will be drawn to him. So that's why it matters. That's why we're being compelled to this. So to dilute is first to live uncompromisingly as a person, as a follower of Christ, and then also to avoid dilution is to to live together as the people of God. Doesn't make sense otherwise. It's hard to say that you fully get the gospel and the picture that God has given in his word for his church if you say that, you know, I can be a Christian on my own. So I've heard that too many times. 
And there's, this brings us to a quick caveat on discipleship, on disciple-making, as I, I like that label a little bit better because it kind of speaks to action. You know, we, we are made Christians by the work of Christ. He is the one who adopts us into the family, his redeeming work. He does that work. He saves us. He transforms us. He, again, brings us life. But then there's this life. So we're sanctified, set apart in that moment, but yet we are continuing to be sanctified. We're continuing to be made more like Christ. And what we need for that, we need those who will show us how to live that over time. That's where we're coming to in the Sermon on the Mount. It's saying, hey, learn this and teach this. We need modeling mentors in the body of Christ. Sometimes that's called a disciple and a discipler. And we would define discipleship as an intentional and relational process by which we introduce people to the transforming work of Jesus and walk alongside and equipping them for God's kingdom work. That's what we need is as Jesus transforms life, we need to come alongside one another teaching them what it is to live out that identity. Again, springboarding us into the Sermon on the Mount. Also a little fun, little fun language thing here. The word translated lost its taste here. The Greek word is moreno. Now, does that sound like anything? Moreno, morano, moron. Sounds like moron. Okay, so it does. That's, and that's where moron comes from. This word translated lost its taste could also be translated foolish. And so this could possibly be a play on words from Jesus kind of, kind of playing with that, which you, there's examples of that. But to think about what it is to be foolish Foolishness is not a lack of knowledge. It's not just having, not having knowledge. Foolishness is the lack of applied knowledge. So thinking about those who are, again, we're talking about you, those who are in Christ, who have been given the truth. Foolishness is to deny it, to live in a way that denies the truth. And what dilutes the salt, what dilutes the truth? To compromise or to deny so again, it's just a call to like total surrender. And so we're to live out the very truth and knowledge of God in an uncompromising way. And in doing so, we point people to the true satisfaction and, and we preserve the earth. Jesus is pointing out the single-mindedness that every Christ follower should have is what their whole life is about. When we think about the salt being just thrown out and trampled on our feet, again, we could go into some contextual things of how that happened and it did. But it's really just saying, hey, you have no other purpose than this. You have no other purpose than to live out my truth in you and for you so that you could be a part of my work of preserving the earth. I, I, who doesn't want to be a part of that? It's, a big, it's big, but I would love to be a part of that. So there is no other purpose. So he's just driving that home. So let's continue reading. Uh, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. We're going to read this all in one chunk here. It says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So quickly, verse 14 starts with, what word is that again? You. All right, so who's the you? Those who are in Christ, it's emphatic, it's inescapable. You are the salt of the earth. Now you are the light of the world. So hear this, guys, everybody. That is who you are. I just want to stop. And again, I know we're talking metaphor here, but let us think in. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's you. Those who are in Christ. The work that Jesus was doing, the work that Jesus came to accomplish, he left to his church. 
you. He works through us. It's his work, but he works through you and me. You are the salt. You are the light. So if salt was working against the negative of the world's decay, or, you know, and fighting against that, we see that light is working in the positive of adding to, of taking the light to the darkness. There's no need to overcomplicate this. Uh, Jesus says we're the light of the world, and then he paints a picture. First, he says you're a city on the hill. You know, and speaking to the future, I mean, think about this. I mean, it's to say that you're, you know, you're the light of the world. Hey, you're a city on the hill. What he's saying is like to try to do anything otherwise or live as anything otherwise, you're fighting against your own identity. It's pointless. It's, at the time, they, they built these cities on large hills, and they're made of white limestone. And so, I mean, imagine on a bright day, the sun's shining, and you're walking. You see, I mean, you can't not see it. And that's what he's saying. He's like, you can't be hidden. Like, if you are the people of God who has the light of Christ in you, you can't be anything than the light of the world. Like, don't, it's futile to try to be anything else. The church cannot be hidden. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And if you remember when we talked through Ephesians a year ago, when we came to this verse, it is not as if you're in the dark and there's a spotlight of God's light and you step into it. That's in the light. What this is saying is that you were darkness. You were darkness. You were the very darkness itself. And in Christ, you are made light. Made light. So you were dark, now you're light. That's the picture here. So then the second picture Jesus paints is that light in the house. As you know, again, they didn't have electricity, so they used these little oil lamps, and they were small. And so to get more coverage in the house, they would, they would, it would first off, just to light a lamp and then put a bowl over it. Like, why light it anyway, right? You light a lamp to light something up. You know, if you want to warm your hands, you're going to build a fire. You're not going to light a lamp. You light a lamp because there's dark and you need light. That's why you light it. So don't light it and then put a bowl over it. So it's, so it's just uh, it's saying again, like, that's what it's for. Um, thinking about, I mean, yesterday we were at the house and Gavin had, his, had my flashlight and he loves the flashlight. And he clicks it and he's running around and then he, he puts it down and leaves it on. I was like, Gavin, I said, hey, buddy, you know, when we're not using the light, you know, you, you got you to, gotta, no, I said, you don't leave the light on when you're not using it. This, this thing was a lot better earlier. But uh, no, it's got to be your bulls. You want to know what that's from, Tommy Boy? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> but you get the point. We don't light a light unless we plan on using it. And somehow Gavin got that point yesterday, but I don't remember how, so it was great. Um, it's a very good teachable moment. He's, he's not, anyway. So anyway, again, because Christ is in you, he has made you the light. So it's let your light shine. Let your light shine before man. That's all the light does. It shines. It illuminates. It chases away darkness. It pierces darkness. So how do we connect the salt and the light? Salt preserves and keeps its saltiness by not being diluted. In other words, live out the truth of God given to show us who we are and how we should live. And as we do that, you'll shine bright as the light of the world. That is revealing the character and image of God. That is what God's truth does. So as you do that, you'll shine bright. There's one hope in this world, and his name is Jesus. 
and our obedient lives point people to him. So once again, we end with our ultimate motivation, and it says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. We don't do good works for our glory, right? I mean, it's, it's obvious, hopefully. Like, we, we don't do this for our works. We live for the pleasure of our King. We do it for the glory of God. We do it because, it, I mean, again, it... Again, another conversation I had this week is, is kind of being confronted and convicted that I, I feel like there's a bit of a selfishness in the way that I view the motivation of being, being stirred by the glory of God because I find myself often, to me, overly committed to finding my benefit from God's glory. And I'm like, hey, it's for God's glory. But, but also, here's how God's glory benefits me. And let me just tell you the truth. To live for God's glory does benefit you. 100%. It is the only true benefit that you have is when God's glory is made known for your life. That's what you're created for. But I was just convicted of realizing that I was really motivated to make sure that I knew how I benefited from God's glory as opposed to just being fully satisfied in God's glory being brought in my life in any way possible. But that is why we live. That's why we do. Talking about, again, the 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 single-mindedness in which Jesus communicated that this is your purpose in the, in the salt. He does it in the light once again. So it is to live this faithful, obedient, purposeful life that each believer that is meant to redeem, preserve, and illuminate and transform the world. So do you hear the scope of God's vision yet? And do you feel the weight of it? Is your heart quickening? You know, maybe is your mind dreaming? And all of a sudden... We recognize that while we live in this local expression of the church, which I love, we are also participating in the global work of God's kingdom work. While we live in this day and time in history, being a part of God's redeeming work for the people around us today, we are also participating in the eternal redemptive work that began way back when Adam and Eve fell. And God spoke the first, the first proclamation of the gospel all the way, and then it's going to be the same work of the gospel, the same redeeming work that continues long after we're gone until Jesus comes back, if, if we make it that far. It's huge, and we get to be a part of it. The scope of the vision and mission is what takes the notion that the Sermon on the Mount could be a moralistic code and reveals that idea to be extremely small. This is the entire mission, guys. This is the means by which God wants to save the world through his church, through his people that are salt and light. So we're going to wrap up with this last question. What is the most effective way to expose the whole world to the light of Jesus? How about we start a little smaller? How about we start with this room? What is the most effective way to bring light to this entire room. So I've worked out a little illustration maybe to paint the picture for us. So for those of you that I've asked to help me, if you could come up here. Um, it's going to get dark. Don't freak out. So, we're called to be the light of the world, right? What is the most effective way to take the light into the whole world? Now, 
typically what we do as a church is we find safety in numbers. And again, the gospel gathers people. So the church comes together, and these guys are going to turn on their lights. We're going to see the church gathered. Okay, come in close, guys. Come in close. Turn yours over where it's facing up. There you go. So this is the church gathered. You know, we each represent a person, a light in Christ. And we gather together, and this is good. The gospel gathers us. You know, but then we, we hear our proclamation. And guys, I'm going to get you guys to read some verses. Let's put Psalm 119, 105, and uh, it's going to be on the screen. How about we read this out loud together, everyone? Read it with me. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. So we are given the light and the word, and it transforms. And we have John 8, 12, which I think was read for us earlier by Carrie. It says, read it with me. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then we come to John 1, 4 through 7. Read it with me. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we see 1 John 1, 6 through 7. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now we have John 17, 15 through 18. We're starting to see the church scatter. Now it says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And let's all read this last one resoundingly. It's Matthew 28, 19, and 20. The, the, the words that Jesus left us before he ascended, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we are the light gathered together as the church. But we see that we are to go. So look around. Are there areas of this room that are not affected by our light? Now let us see the church scattered. We see the same amount of lights. Each light is the same brightness, but more of this room is exposed to the light. As we are sent out, we take the light of Jesus with us. We hear, go and make disciples. When we hear that, what we're told is to go and multiply the family of God. Take the image of God to the world around you because in his image being displayed through his church, he will call people in and they will find life. They will be preserved and they will be taken from darkness to light. So as we go, we extend the gospel. We build each other up as we gather and as as the body of Christ. As we gather, we actually end up sending each other out. As the Lord leads and compels. In doing that, that's how we plant churches. This is not about our church planting initiative. This is about being obedient to being salt and light. All that a planted church is, it's the people of God 
going as he leads and, and coming together as the family of God, expressing his image more effectively. So guys, we can't help it. This is who we are. To not live this out is to, to, to deny our identity in Christ. So as you heard, the gospel of Jesus gathers people in, so community will form. It forms a church. The gospel also sends people out as they express the heart of Jesus for the world. So guys, I pray that the bridge is not a safe place for you. I pray that it's safe and that we care and that we speak truth when needed, that we come alongside, but I pray that it's unsafe and that we live with an understanding that we are sent people and that at any moment God could call any of us out. Again, our prayer is not do we go, but it's do we stay. It terrifies me and it breaks my heart to think that God will call you out because I love each one of you, but that's what we're about. So you see there's more light hitting more parts of this room. There are still areas of darkness. We didn't do a candle lighting at Christmas. If y'all could get your phones out. If you have a flashlight, it won't do you any good if you don't. Go ahead and just shine your light up if you have a flashlight. Guys, we want to have a strong expression of the gathered church. We will impact our community, these streets right here, by living in that way. But we also want to live with a humble posture, ready to go as the Lord leads, as a sent people, so that we could take the light of Jesus to the entire world. That's our call. That's our identity. That's our opportunity. So we are salt and light in this world. Let me read our passage one more time, and then we'll go into our time of prayer. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light all and to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Amen. We can bring the lights back up. So as we end each sermon, we're going to end today with a time of prayer. And we'll just have a few moments just for a few to offer up some prayers. Some will pray aloud. Some will pray silent. Some will just listen. And, and uh, let, let that just be, let this be a time of you to respond, maybe to confess uh, just anything you need to confess to the Lord, uh, to each other. Let this be a time of accepting the charge again, just as the Lord leads. We'll give you a few moments, and then Kurt will come and lead us through communion. Okay, so I'll open this up in a short prayer, and then we'll let it time for a few others to pray. So God, I thank you, Lord, for the salvation we have in Christ, and Lord, that in salvation, Lord, we not only we not only are secured for eternity in heaven and fellowship with you, but we are also given a new identity and a new purpose in life and a hope and a peace that surpasses all understanding and circumstance. So God, let us understand and accept the charge to live as salt and light in this earth, living out the uncompromising truth that you have given us. Lord, living out the uncompromising truth that has transformed us in Christ. And Lord, um, just living in the context of community, gospel community, your church. Let us live as light. We're not being ashamed, but letting our light shine. Again, not denying our identity, 
If we are in Christ, we have been made light. So let us just simply live out who we are. God, help us to make sense of this. Lord, speak to our hearts. Let your Holy Spirit illuminate your truth. Let your work be complete. In Jesus' name.